Part twenty five of the Book of the National Parks. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Book of the National Parks by Robert Sterling Yard. A Pageant of Creation Continued. Three. Entrance is from the south. The motor road to Grandview is available for most of the year. The railroad to the El Tovar Hotel serves the year round, for the Grand Canyon is an all year resort. There is a short winter of heavy snows on the rim, but not in the canyon, which may be descended at all seasons. Both routes terminate on the rim. Always dramatic, the Grand Canyon welcomes the pilgrim in the full panoply of its appalling glory. There is no waiting in the anteroom, no sounding of trumpets, no ceremony of presentation. He stands at once in the presence. Most visitors have bought tickets at home, which permit only one day's stay. The irrecoverable sensation of the first view is broken by the necessity for an immediate decision upon how to spend that day, for if one is to descend horseback to the river, he must engage his place and don his riding clothes at once. Under this stress, the majority elect to remain on the rim, for reasons wholly apart from any question of respective merit. After all, if only one day is possible, it is the wise decision. With the rim road, over which various drives are scheduled, and several commanding points to whose precipices one may walk, it will be a day to remember for a lifetime. One should not attempt too much in this one day. It is enough to sit in the presence of the spectacle. Fortunate is he who may stay another day and descend the trail into the streets of this vast city. Many times fortunate, he who may live a little amid its glories. Because of this general habit of seeing the Grand Canyon between sunrise and sunset, the admirable hotel accommodations are not extensive, but sufficient. There are cottage accommodations also at cheaper rates. Hotels and cottages are well patronized summer and winter. Upon the rim are unique rest houses, in one of which is a high-power telescope. There is a memorial altar to John Wesley Powell, the first explorer of the canyon. There is an excellent reproduction of a Hopi house. There is an Indian camp. The day's wanderer upon the rim will not lack entertainment when his eyes turn for rest from the chasm. From the hotel, coaches make regular trips daily to various viewpoints. Hopi Point, Mojave Point, Yavapai Point, and Grandeur Point may all be visited. The run of eight miles along the famous Hermit Rim Road permits brief stops at Hopi, Mojave, and Pima Points. Automobiles also make regular runs to the gorgeous spectacle from Grand View. Still more distant points may be made in private or hired cars. Navajo Point offers unequal views up and down the full length of the canyon, and an automobile road will bring the visitor within easy reach of Bass Camp near Havasupe Point in the far west of the reservation. Many one-day visitors take none of these stage and automobile trips, contented to dream the hours away upon Yavapai or Hopi Points nearby. After all, it is just as well. A single viewpoint cannot be mastered in one's first day, so what's the use of others? On the other hand, seeing the same view from different viewpoints miles apart will enrich and elaborate it. Besides, one should see many views in order to acquire some conception, however small, of the intricacy and grandeur of the canyon. Besides, these trips help to rest the eyes and mind. It is hard, indeed, to advise the unlucky one-day visitor. It is as if a dyspeptic would lead you to an elaborate banquet of a dozen courses, and say, I have permission to eat three bites. Please help me choose them. Wherever he stands upon the rim, the appalling silence hushes the voice to whispers. No cathedral imposes stillness so complete. 
It is sacrilege to speak, almost to move. And yet the Grand Canyon is a moving picture. It changes every moment. Always shadows are disappearing here, appearing there, shortening here, lengthening there. With every passing hour it becomes a different thing. It is a sundial of monumental size. In the early morning the light streams down the canyon from the east. Certain promontories shoot miles into the picture, gleaming in vivid color, backed by dark shadows. Certain palaces and temples stand in magnificent relief. The inner gorge is brilliantly outlined in certain places. As the day advances, these prominences shift positions. Some fade, some disappear, still others spring into view. As midday approaches, the shadows fade, the promontories flatten, the towering edifices move bodily backward and merge themselves in the opposite rim. There is a period of several hours when the whole canyon has become a solid wall, strata fail to match, eye and mind become confused, comprehension is baffled by the tangle of disconnected bands of color, the watcher is distressed by an oppressive sense of helplessness. It is when afternoon is well advanced that the magician's sun begins his most astonishing miracles in the canyon's depths. Out of the blazing wall, one by one, step the mighty obelisks and palaces, defined by ever-changing shadows. Unsuspected promontories emerge. Undreamed of gulfs sink back in the perspective. The serpentine gorge appears here, fades there, seems almost to move in the slow-changing shadows. I shall not try even to suggest the soul-uplifting spectacle which culminates in sunset. Days may be spent upon the rim in many forms of pleasure. Short camping trips may be made to distant points. The descent into the canyon is usually made from El Tovar, down the Bright Angel Trail, so called because it faces the splendid Bright Angel Canyon of the north side, and by the newer Hermit Trail, which starts a few miles west. There are trails at Grandview, eight miles east, and at Bass Camp, twenty-four miles west of El Tavar, which are seldom used now. All go to the bottom of the Granite Gorge. The commonly used trails may be traveled afoot by those physically able, and on muleback by any persons of any age who enjoys ordinary health. The Bright Angel Trip returns the traveler to the rim at day's end. The hermit trail trip camps him overnight on the floor of the canyon at the base of a magic temple. The finest trip of all takes him down the hermit trail, gives him a night in the depths, and returns him to the rim by the Bright Angel Trail. Powell named Bright Angel Creek during that memorable first passage through the canyon. He had just named a muddy creek Dirty Devil, which suggested, by contrast, the name of Bright Angel for a stream so pure and sparkling. The Havasupi Indian Reservation may be visited in the depths of Cataract Canyon by following the trail from Bass Camp. The first experience usually noted in the descent is the fine quality of the trail, gentle in slope and bordered by rock on the steep side. The next experience is the disappearance of the straight, uncompromising horizon of the opposite rim, which is a distinctive feature of every view from above. As soon as the descent fairly begins, even the smaller bluffs and promontories assume towering proportions, and from the Tonto floor, the mighty elevations of Cheops, Isis, Zoroaster, Shiva, Wotan, and the countless other temples of the abyss become mountains of enormous height. From the river's side, the elevations of the granite gorge present a new series of precipitous towers, back of which, in places, loom the tops of the painted palaces, and back of them, from occasional favored view spots, the far distant rim. 
Here and here only does the Grand Canyon reveal the fullness of its meaning. 4. The Grand Canyon was discovered in 1540 by El Tovar, one of the captains of Cardenas, in charge of one of the expeditions of the Spanish explorer Diaz, who was hunting for seven fabled cities of vast wealth. They reached the banks of a river which seemed to be more than three or four leagues above the stream that flowed between them. It was seen in 1776 by a Spanish priest who sought a crossing and found one at a point far above the canyon. This still bears the name Vedo de los Padres. By 1840 it was probably known to the trappers who overran the country. In 1850, Lieutenant Whipple, surveying for a Pacific route, explored the Black Canyon and ascended the Grand Canyon to Diamond Creek. In 1857, Lieutenant Ives, sent by the War Department to test the navigability of the Colorado, ascended as far as the Virgin River in a steamboat, which he had shipped in pieces from Philadelphia. From there he entered the Grand Canyon afoot, climbed to the rim, and making a detour, encountered the river again higher up. In 1867, James White was picked up below the Virgin River, lashed to floating logs. He said that his hunting party, near the head of the Colorado River, attacked by Indians, had escaped upon a raft. This presently broke up in the rapids, and his companions were lost. He lashed himself to the wreckage, and was washed through the Grand Canyon. About this time, Major John Wesley Powell, a schoolteacher who had lost an arm in the Civil War, determined to explore the great canyons of the Green and Colorado Rivers. Besides the immense benefit to science, the expedition promised a great adventure. Many lives had been lost in these canyons, and wonderful were the tales told concerning them. Indians reported that huge cataracts were hidden in their depths, and that in one place the river swept through an underground passage. Nevertheless, with the financial backing of the State Institutions of Illinois and the Chicago Academy of Science, Powell got together a party of ten men with four open boats, provisions for ten months, and all necessary scientific instruments. He started above the canyons of the Green River, on May 24, 1869. There are many canyons on the Green and Colorado Rivers. They vary in length from 8 to 150 miles, with walls successively rising from 1,300 to 3,500 feet in height. The climax of all, the Grand Canyon, is 217 miles long, with walls 6,000 feet in height. On August 17th, when Powell and his adventurers reached the Grand Canyon, their rations had been reduced by upsets and other accidents to enough musty flour for ten days, plenty of coffee, and a few dried apples. The bacon had spoiled. Most of the scientific instruments were in the bottom of the river. One boat was destroyed. The men were wet to the skin and unable to make a fire. In this plight they entered the Grand Canyon, somewhere in whose depths a great cataract had been reported. The story of the passage is too long to tell here. Chilled, hungry, and worn, they struggled through it, Often they were obliged to let their boats down steep rapids by ropes, and clamber after them along the slippery precipices. Often there was nothing to do but to climb into their boats and run down long foaming slants, around the corners of which death, perhaps, awaited. Many times they were upset and barely escaped with their lives. With no wraps or clothing that were not soaked with water, there were nights when they could not sleep for the cold. So the days passed, and the food lessened to a few handfuls of wet flour the dangers increased. Some falls were twenty feet in height. Finally, three of the men determined to desert. They believed they could climb the walls, and that their chances would be better with the Indians than with the canyon. Powell endeavored to dissuade them, 
but they were firm. He offered to divide his flour with them, but this they refused. These men, two Howlands, brothers, and William Dunn, climbed the canyon walls and were killed by Indians. Two or three days later, Powell and the rest of his party emerged below the Grand Canyon, where they found food and safety. Taught by the experience of this great adventure, Powell made a second trip two years later, which was a scientific achievement. Later on, he became director of the United States Geological Survey. Since then, the passage of the Grand Canyon has been made several times. R.B. Stanton made it in 1889 in the course of a survey for a proposed railroad through the canyon. One of the leaders of the party was drowned. 5. The history of the Grand Canyon has been industriously collected. It remains for others to gather the legends. It is enough here to quote from Powell the Indian story of its origin. Long ago, he writes, there was a great and wise chief who mourned the death of his wife and would not be comforted until Tavoats, one of the Indian gods, came to him and told him that his wife was in a happier land and offered to take him there that he might see for himself, if upon his return he would cease to mourn. The great chief promised. Then Tafoats made a trail through the mountains that intervened between that beautiful land, the balmy region of the great west, and this, the desert home of the poor Numa. This trail was the canyon gorge of the Colorado. Through it he led him, and when they had returned, the deity exacted from the chief a promise that he would tell no one of the trail. Then he rolled a river into the gorge, a mad, raging stream, that should engulf any that might attempt to enter thereby. 6. The bill creating the Grand Canyon National Park passed Congress early in 1919 and was signed by President Wilson on February 26th. This closed an intermittent campaign of 33 years, begun by President Harrison, then Senator from Indiana, in January 1886, to make a national park of the most stupendous natural spectacle in the world. Politics, private interests, and the deliberation of governmental procedure were the causes of delay. A self-evident proposition from the beginning, it illustrates the enormous difficulties which confront those who labor to develop our national park system. The story is worth the telling. Senator Harrison's bill of 1886 met an instant response from the whole nation. It called for a national park 56 miles long and 69 miles wide. There was opposition from Arizona, and the bill failed. In 1893, the Grand Canyon National Forest was created. In 1898, depredations and unlawful seizures of land having been reported, the Secretary of the Interior directed the Land Office to prepare a new National Park bill. In 1899, the Land Office reported that the bill could not be drawn until the region was surveyed. It took the Geological Survey five years to make the survey. The bill was not prepared because, meantime, it was discovered that the Atlantic and Pacific Railroad, now the Santa Fe, owned rights which first must be eliminated. Failing to become a national park, President Roosevelt proclaimed the Grand Canyon a national monument in 1908. In 1909, a bill was introduced entitling Ralph H. Cameron to build a scenic railway along the canyon rim, which created much adverse criticism and failed. In 1910, the American Scenic and Historic Preservation Society proposed a bill to create the Grand Canyon a national park of large size. The Geological Survey, to which it was referred, recommended a much smaller area. By the direction of President Taft, Senator Flint introduced a national park bill which differed from both suggestions. The opposition of grazing interests threw it into the hands of conferees. 
In 1911, Senator Flint introduced the Conferees Bill, but it was opposed by private interest and failed. Meantime, the country became aroused. Patriotic societies petitioned for a national park, and the National Federation of Women's Clubs began an agitation. The Department of the Interior prepared a map upon which to base a bill, and for several years negotiated with the Forest Service, which administered the Grand Canyon as a national monument, concerning boundaries. Finally, the boundaries were reduced to little more than the actual rim of the canyon, and a bill was prepared which Senator Ashurst introduced in February 1917. It failed in committee in the House, owing to opposition from Arizona. It was the same bill, again introduced by Senator Ashurst in the new Congress two months later, which finally passed the House and became a law in 1919, but it required a favoring resolution by the Arizona legislature to pave the way. Meantime, many schemes were launched to utilize the Grand Canyon for private gain. It was plastered thickly with mining claims, though the geological survey showed that it contained no minerals worth mining. Mining claims helped delay. Schemers sought capital to utilize its waters for power. Railroads were projected. Plans were drawn to run sightseeing cars across it on wire cables. These were the interests, and many others, which opposed the National Park. End of Part 25